Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The 1915 silent film, The Birth of a Nation, is one of the most popular and controversial films ever made. Its success catapulted director D.W. Griffith into stardom while cementing the film, a piece of racist propaganda really, into the annals of film history. It's an amazing film with a horrifying message, which claimed that America's rebirth after the Civil War was possible only through the power of white supremacy. The film follows two families the pro-Union Stonemans and the pro-Confederacy Camerons through two parts. Part one takes the viewer through the antebellum period and the Civil War, ending with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Part two picks up during Reconstruction and paints the post-war landscape as the world turned upside down with newly freed black people running amok. And the only way to set things right is through vigilante violence from the KKK. The film's premise is that black freedom and voting rights during Reconstruction after the Civil War was a horrible mistake that created tragic consequences for white Southerners particularly and the U.S. as a whole. However, this interpretation was viewed as fact by many white people in 1915, and we'll dive into why that is in this episode. Regardless, many modern viewers might be surprised at how blatantly racist the film Birth of a Nation is. Like, literally, the KKK are the good guys in the movie. There are no dog whistles or subtle innuendos that could provide cover. Nope, it's there, literally in black and white, putting racial stereotypes into moving image. The movie weaves the tale that white Southern men created the KKK to protect white women from the ravages of black men. The Birth of a Nation is still studied in film schools because of Griffith's early use of dramatic camera and editing techniques. In 1992, the Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in the National Archives because it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. But why was such a blatantly racist film so popular? And why is it still relevant today? That's what we hope to shed light on in this episode. Let's dive in. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. Thanks for listening to this podcast and to our amazing Patreon supporters, especially our auger and excavator level patrons, Lauren, Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, 
Peggy and Jessica. Thank you for choosing us to patronize. We are nothing without you. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. The Birth of a Nation is a 1915 film directed by D.W. Griffith. It is an adaptation of Thomas Dixon Jr.'s 1905 book, The Klansman, an historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan, which depicts the KKK in a heroic light. The Klansman is the second book in Dixon's Reconstruction trilogy that includes the 1902 book The Leopard Spots, A Romance of the White Man's Burden, and the 1907 final book The Traitor, A Story of the Rise and Fall of the Invisible Empire. Thomas Dixon Jr. was a kind of jack of all trades from North Carolina. He was a Baptist minister, a lawyer, a one-term North Carolina legislator, an author, and essentially a professional racist. He was a firm adherent to white supremacy and believed that after slavery was abolished, black people in the United States had degenerated as a race. His goal in writing novels was to spread the Southern or lost cause slash white supremacist view of Reconstruction across the nation. The Lost Cause is shorthand for a sort of shared mythology that refashions the Civil War as an honorable and heroic struggle of a knightly Christian South against an immoral invader, aka the North. This mythology was actively created by writers who wrote nostalgic essays and books about beauty and honor of the, of the Old South, as well as by women's groups who helped to direct public events and celebrations of Confederate martyrs, and, of course, by the creation of monuments to Confederate heroes. They also had to create the idea that the war had nothing to do with slavery and instead was about states' rights and protecting the homeland from invaders, especially protecting their vulnerable women. This mythology also casts Reconstruction as a time when northern carpetbaggers decimated the South and white Southerners' civil rights were trampled on by the black people they formerly enslaved. Dixon was a master at perpetuating this mythology and wanted his first book, the 1902 The Leopard Spots, and subsequent books to be a kind of answer to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. He wanted to show the Southern point of view, and as he put it, quote-unquote, set the record straight regarding Reconstruction. The title of Dixon's first book sums up his views on race and white supremacy. The title, The Leopard Spots, refers to the biblical question from the book of Jeremiah. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? So Dixon is implying that just like the leopard cannot change its spots, so too black Americans could not change what Dixon saw as their flawed nature. In The Leopard Spots, Klansmen are seen as heroes who bring order to the Reconstruction South. The book sold fairly well, and Dixon followed it up with The Klansman, published in 1905, which also depicts the KKK as the saviors of the Reconstruction South. Both novels depict Black people as being unable to suppress animalistic impulses and being consumed with their sexual desire for white women. 
Shortly after The Klansman was published, Dixon adapted the novel into a stage play that was performed across the U.S. and was extremely popular in the South. There were protests against the Klansman play, and it was banned in Philadelphia, Montgomery, Alabama, and Macon, Georgia for a time. Uh, But regardless, it was extremely popular and drew huge audiences. Upon the play's success, Dixon began shopping it for the new medium of film. At the time, entrepreneurs were creating all sorts of new ways to view moving pictures. At this time, something called Nickelodeons were springing up all over the United States. And these, for the most part, were converted storefronts where, for a nickel, patrons could sit down on wooden benches and watch short, silent films that were run on a continuous loop throughout the day. Normally, a person played a piano for musical accompaniment. Most Nickelodeons could hold about 200 people, but as film's popularity expanded, some theaters opened that could accommodate up to 1,000 people. Uh, It's estimated that by 1908, there were 8,000 Nickelodeons in the United States, and that by 1910, about 26 million Americans visited these theaters weekly. Nickelodeons created a moral panic as do-gooders worried the movie houses would corrupt America's youth as they watched titillating images on screen inside darkened, unsex-segregated theaters. However, as viewing films became more popular and more respectable, Nickelodeons gave way to the lavish movie palaces that were popular in the 1920s. In 1911, one and a half reels of film were shot of the Klansmen in Kinmacolor, a new process that added a two-color process to black and white film. Kinmacolor was most popular in the UK, but never took off in the US because of the high cost of the equipment that theaters would need in order to show Kinmacolor movies. The, the adaptation of the Klansmen in Kinmacolor was abandoned when director D.W. Griffith purchased Kinmacolor's Hollywood studio and took over the rights to the Klansmen. Griffith, like Dixon, had grown up in the shadow of the Civil War and the Lost Cause. Griffith was born in 1875 on a farm in Oldham County, Kentucky, to Confederate Army Colonel Jacob Wark Roaring Jake Griffith who was later elected as a Kentucky state legislator. Although Roaring Jake died when Griffith was only 10 years old, plunging his family into poverty, the elder Griffith's larger-than-life figure shaped the younger Griffith's worldview from an early age. D.W. Griffith said that as a young boy, he would often sneak into the family room at night and listen to his larger-than-life father talk about his Civil War exploits in defense of the Confederacy. At the age of 14, Griffith's mother, Mary Perkins, moved the struggling family to their farm in Louisville, Kentucky. Soon thereafter, Griffith became a traveling actor, which took him across the United States. He was never very good and got lackluster reviews, but he landed enough roles to keep working. In fact, he starred in a play produced by Thomas Dixon in 1906 entitled The One Woman. Griffith also began writing plays, but without much success. In 1907, he began working as an extra in silent short films, and in 1908, he began directing silent films for the Biograph Company, turning out 48 short films in just his first year alone. Griffith began experimenting with film as a new medium. In 1909, he directed an adaptation of Charles Dickens' The Cricket on the Hearth. 
developing the technique of cross-cutting or showing two stories alongside one another. Soon he began butting heads with the Biograph Company because Griffith wanted to direct longer, more produced films when the company just wanted him to keep churning out short films fit for Nickelodeons. Griffith left Biograph and co-produced The Life of General Villa, a semi-biographical film shot with Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. This film launched Pancho Villa into international notoriety. Later, Griffith created his own production studio with producer Harry Aitken and began work on the adaptation of Dixon's The Klansman. Griffith explained that Dixon's romantic mythology about the Klan, quote, hit me big and that he hoped at once that it could be done for the story of the South had been absorbed into my very being, end quote. Griffith shared that, quote, I could just see these Klansmen in a movie with their white robes flying. According to actress Lillian Gish, who played the Birth of a Nation's female lead as Elsie Stoneman, at the beginning of filming, Griffith told his actors he wanted the film to, quote, tell the truth about the war between the states. He said, quote, it hasn't been told accurately in history books. Only the winning side in the war ever gets to tell its story, end quote. Obviously, truth for Griffith and Dixon was a mythologized Southern truth that did not reflect the actual reality of the war or Reconstruction. Griffith spared no expense filming Birth of a Nation. The movie was originally budgeted at $40,000, but it ended up costing $110,000. And that's about $2.7 million in today's money, which, you know, I guess against modern films, that's not crazy. But back in the time, back in the day, it was the most expensive film that was ever made. Hmm. The reenactment of the Union Army's assault on Petersburg, Virginia in 1865, which led to the South surrender, was the largest war scene ever filmed up to that point. The scene took three days to film. Not only was it a giant undertaking physically, but Griffith and his cinematographer Billy Bitzer used new film techniques that made their several hundred extras appear on screen as two armies numbering in the thousands. They used smoke bombs to simulate cannon fire, and in some of the more dramatic shots, Griffith and Blitzer filmed actors dressed as Klansmen riding horses while they zoomed beside them in a car. Apparently, Griffith was an exacting director, as the scene where John Wilkes Booth jumped to the stage of Ford's theater after shooting President Lincoln was shot more than 15 times until he was happy. Griffith shot 36 hours worth of film, equaling 26 miles. Whew which had to be edited down to a three-hour movie. Griffith hired composer Joseph Carl Braille, who is famous for composing music for stage plays. Braille and Griffith worked closely together to combine classical music, such as Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture and Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyries, which became The Ride of the Klansmen in the film, uh, and they interspersed this into an original score. In fact, at the movie's L.A. premiere, the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra played the score live in the theater while moviegoers went wild over what they saw and heard. The film follows two families, the Northern Abolition Stonemans, consisting of U.S. Representative Austin Stoneman, who's based on Thaddeus Stevens, and his daughter Elsie, 
and sons, Phil and Todd. And then the Southern Camerons, including the patriarch, Dr. Cameron, his wife, Mrs. Cameron, and their three sons, Ben, Wade, and Duke. And, of course, their daughter, Margaret. Part one of the film begins in South Carolina on the Cameron family plantation, where the eldest stoneman son, Phil, falls in love with Margaret Cameron. The antebellum South is depicted as a courtly, lovely place where enslaved people working on the Stoneman plantation enjoy their work and love their white masters. When the Civil War breaks out, the sons of both families enlist in their respective armies. The youngest Stoneman boy, Todd, is killed in battle. So are two of Cameron's sons. Back in South Carolina, the defenseless Cameron women are attacked by a black Union regiment and are dramatically saved by Confederate soldiers. Meanwhile, Confederate Ben Cameron leads a dramatic charge at the siege of Petersburg, which earns him the nickname of the Little Colonel, but also finds him wounded and captured. He is taken to a Union military hospital in Washington, D.C., and told he will be hung as a traitor. While there, Ben Cameron meets Elsie Stoneman, who is working as a nurse at the hospital, and they begin a relationship. Part one ends with President Abraham Lincoln's dramatic assassination at Ford's Theater. In part two of Griffith's retelling, men like Austin Stoneman and the radical Republicans are determined to enforce harsh measures through Reconstruction policy in order to punish the South. Stoneman and his mixed-race protege, Silas Lynch, go to South Carolina to implement Reconstruction policies. During the election in South Carolina, Griffith portrays black people stuffing ballot boxes while white people are turned away from the polls. It's in this election that the mixed-race Lynch is elected lieutenant governor. The next scene shows the newly elected South Carolina legislature as almost entirely African-American, who are all acting in stereotyped fashion. One guy has his feet up on a desk, another is drinking hooch straight out of the bottle, and eating fried chicken. Pretty gross. It should be noted that this scene is one of the few scenes where African-Americans are actually playing the, the characters on screen. Many of the African-Americans in the film were portrayed by white actors in blackface. Griffith initially claimed that this was deliberate, stating, quote, On careful weighing of every detail concerned, the decision was to have no black blood among the principals. It was only in the legislative scene that Negroes were used, and then only as extra people. Now, there are a few other scenes where black actors are filmed, particularly in the antebellum slave fields pictured early on in the movie, but all leading black characters are white people in blackface. While all this is going on, Ben, the little general, is frustrated that black people are no longer acting subservient to whites. He gets inspired when he sees two white children pretending to be ghosts in order to scare some black children, and he dreams up the Ku Klux Klan. Later, the youngest Cameron sister, Flora, is ambushed by Gus, a former slave and Union soldier. He is played by white actor Walter Long in blackface. Gus's character is seen leering at Flora, playing into the stereotypical hypersexed black man intent on sleeping with white women. Gus tells Flora he wants to marry her and chases her through the woods. In one of the more famous scenes from the movie, Flora jumps off a cliff instead of succumbing to the rape that the movie implies will happen. 
In retaliation, Ben and his newly formed KKK hunt down Gus, castrate him, and lynch him. In response to this, the Lieutenant Governor Silas Lynch attempts to suppress the Klan. He also helps pass a law that would allow mixed-race marriages, which, you know, uh, it was never a law that was actually passed and basically instead shows how convinced white people were that black men just wanted to have sex with white women. Uh, In Lynch's crackdown, Ben's father, the senior Dr. Cameron, is arrested when he is found hiding Ben's KKK regalia. Uh, He is rescued by Phil Stoneman and his loyal black servants, who then whisk him away to a cabin in the woods, where they come across a group of white former Union soldiers. However, instead of turning them in, the ex-soldiers join sides with them. And the intertitle card reads, quote, the former enemies of North and South are united again in common defense of their Aryan birthright. Oh, heavens. Elsie Stoneman then goes to silence Lynch to plead for clemency for Dr. Cameron. But Lynch, who you'll remember is mixed race, tries to force Elsie to marry him, which was code for he wanted to rape her. So again, another stereotypical attempted rape of a white woman by a black man. Elsie is essentially kidnapped by Lynch and then saved by Ben and his KKK buddies. After rescuing Elsie, the Klansmen race out to the hut where Dr. Cameron and the ex-Union soldiers are fighting Lynch's militia and win the battle. Then the Klansmen parade through the town and all of the black people are shown running away in fear. The next scene is a fast forward in time showing the next election day where black people are blocked from voting by a line of mounted and armed Klansmen. The film ends with the marriages of Margaret Cameron to to Phil Stoneman and Elsie Stoneman to Ben Cameron, two families reconciled through white supremacy, just like the nation. Reconciliation was a pretty common sentiment among most white Americans in the early 20th century. This idea that the rift in the nation must be reconciled at the expense of black people's full freedom. Historian David Blight sums this up perfectly, stating, quote, The forces of reconciliation overwhelmed the emancipationist vision in the national culture. The inexorable drive for reunion both used and trumped race, end quote. So in other words, most of white America wanted to forget about the promises of emancipation in the 14th and 15th Amendments and instead just heal the rift between white Northerners and Southerners as much as possible. Men like Griffith and Dixon, quote, gave their well-plied audiences the message not only that blacks did not want their freedom, but also that emancipation had been America's greatest and most dangerous disaster. The mid-1910s were filled with 50th anniversaries of the Civil War. In 1913, there had been a huge celebration at Gettysburg to commemorate the battle's 50th anniversary. 50,000 Civil War veterans went to Pennsylvania to celebrate, as well as President Woodrow Wilson and 150 reporters from the press. 
These types of blue-gray reunions buoyed the idea that, according to Blight, quote, the war was remembered primarily as a tragedy that forged greater unity, as the soldiers called to sacrifice in order to save a troubled but essentially good union, not as the crisis of a nation in 1913 still deeply divided over slavery, race, competing definitions of labor, liberty, political economy, and the future of the West, end quote. So America was in kind of a remembrance fever over the war during the period. In fact, The Birth of a Nation was not the only film about the Civil War at this time. Griffith himself had shot 12 films about the Civil War while working for Biograph Pictures, all with a romantic view of the war and Southern values. And he was not alone. Many films of the era portrayed Black characters as happy and content under slavery and taught that slavery was not at all the cause of the war, but that slavery's destruction was responsible for the degeneracy of the Black race. Many movies depicted Black servants, particularly mammies, as loyal to their white masters. In the 1914 short film, The Old Oak's Secret, a black character named Old Mose goes so far as to hide his master's will because he did not want to see its manumission clause come to fruition. Thus, moviegoers were accustomed to this type of imagery on the screen. Therefore, 1915 was the 50th anniversary of the end of the Civil War and a fitting year for a racist movie. The first public showing of The Birth of a Nation was in Los Angeles on January 1st and 2nd, 1915. It was shown using its original title, The Klansman. Buzz surrounding the movie was so big that the second night sold out and the theater had to turn moviegoers away. Dixon and Griffith were masters at generating press for the movie. In fact, Dixon had already proven he was adept at shameless self-promotion. To promote, to promote his book, The Klansman, Dixon had challenged the black leader Booker T. Washington to debate, quote, er, the, the future of the Negro in America. Obviously, Washington declined, knowing Dixon was an avowed racist and had no intention to, to debate ethically or with facts. Nevertheless, the stunt garnered headlines, encouraging Dixon to keep up the antic, going so far as to pledge $10,000 to Washington's Tuskegee Institute if Washington would publicly assert that his doctrine of black self-improvement was not intended to achieve, quote, social equality for the Negro, and that his Tuskegee Institute was opposed to the amalgamation of the races. Dixon's scheme to promote his book was light years ahead of contemporary marketing tactics used to drum up excitement for media. Griffith was no stranger to self-promotion either. When Griffith left Biograph and began his own production company, he took out a full-page ad in the New York Dramatic Mirror, an entertainment newspaper popular at the time. The ad stated that Griffith was solely responsible for, quote, revolutionizing motion picture drama and founding the modern technique of the art, end quote. It also said that Griffith had invented a plethora of film techniques from the close-up to the fade-out shot. This wasn't really true. Many directors at the time were pushing the boundaries of filmmaking. But Griffith, early on in his directing career, understood how advertising and embellishment worked to his advantage. One of the biggest boons for the movie Birth of a Nation was its showing in the Wilson White House. Thomas Dixon and Woodrow Wilson had been graduate students together at Johns Hopkins University. Dixon met with Wilson in early February 1915 and told him that, quote, 
I had a motion picture he should see, not because it was the greatest ever produced or because his classmates had written the story and a southern director had made the film, but because this picture made clear for the first time that a new universal language had been invented, end quote. Wilson agreed to see the film if Dixon promised to keep the event quiet and not use the event for press in any way. The Birth of a Nation was shown in the White House on February 18, 1915. It's often touted as the first film ever shown in the White House, which is technically true because it was shown inside the East Room, but the first film ever shown in the White House grounds was actually the 1914 film, Kiberia, which was shown on the White House lawn. President Wilson and members of his family and cabinet were present for the viewing of the film which was then called The Klansman in the East Room. The film's title was actually changed to The Birth of a Nation right before the March 2nd New York opening. Dixon and Griffith were in attendance at the White House viewing. And after the screening, President Wilson reportedly said of the film, quote, it's like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it is all so terribly true. Now, historians are in disagreement as to if Wilson actually said this about the film. Uh, Historian Mark Benbow maintains that the first part can probably be attributed to Wilson, but the terribly true bit is most likely a fabrication. But whatever Wilson said after the screening, he essentially quote, gave the filmmakers all the endorsement they needed by agreeing to view the film in the White House. In Griffith's words, by viewing the film in the White House, Wilson conferred an honor upon the birth of a nation. And in fact, the screening was in itself a tacit endorsement sufficient to protect the film from censors and to allow it to be shown across the country. Regardless of what Wilson said, he was very much okay with the depiction of Reconstruction as a time when, in his own words, quote, whites were under the heel of the black South. In fact, Griffith had even used Woodrow Wilson's own academic works. Um, Wilson was a professional historian and former president of Princeton University as a source material for some of the title cards in the film. So, for example, in part two of the film, which takes place during Reconstruction, three title cards use excerpts from Wilson's five-volume History of the American People. The first title card explains, quote unquote, how northern carpetbaggers, which was a derogatory term for northerners who went south to profit from Reconstruction, swept into the south after the Civil War. The card reads, adventurers swarmed out of the north as much the enemies of the one race as of the other to cozen, beguile, and use the Negroes. In the villages, the Negroes were the office holders, men who knew none of the uses of authority except its insolences. And I'll just say, as an aside, we're using the word Negroes because that is a quote from the title card of the film. A second title card that quotes Wilson reads, The policy of the congressional leaders wrought a veritable overthrow of civilization in the South in their determination to put the white South under the heel of the black South. And a third title card reads, The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation. Until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South, to protect the Southern country. 
As noted by historians such as Arthur Link and Melvin Stokes, Griffith took parts of sentences from different pages for the third title card to make it appear that Wilson believed the formation of the Klan was the only just response by Southern whites to Reconstruction. Regardless, Wilson's romantic view of the antebellum South and his belief that Reconstruction was a failure because black people gained legislative power through chicanery and bribes and corrupted Southern governments until white people were able to gain control again, was part and parcel of the lost cause mythology. Here's a long quote from Wilson himself writing about Reconstruction. So this is is Wilson's words verbatim. So the first practical result of Reconstruction under the Acts of 1867 was the disfranchisement for several weary years of the better whites and the consequent giving over of the Southern governments into the hands of the Negroes, and yet not into their hands after all. They were but children still, and unscrupulous men, or carpetbaggers, men not come to be citizens, but come upon an expedition of profit, come to make the name of Republican forever hateful in the South, came out of the North to use the Negroes as tools for their own selfish ends, and they succeeded to the utmost fulfillment of their dreams." Negro majorities for a little while filled the Southern legislatures, but they won no power or profit for themselves beyond a pittance here and there for a bribe. Their leaders, strangers and adventurers, got the lucrative offices, the handling of the state's monies raised by loan, and of the taxes spent no one knew how. Here and there, an able and upright man cleansed administration, checked corruption, served them as a real friend and an honest leader, but not for long. The Negroes were exalted. The states were misgoverned and looted in their name. And a few men, not of their number, not really of their interest, went away with the gains. They were left to carry the discredit and reap the consequences of ruin, when at last the whites, who were real citizens, got control again (sighs) yeah he's the worst um should i should i should i explain that a little more yeah yeah, please explain a little more so just in in common language he's basically saying that the, the 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 black people were quote children and uh, were beguiled by these northern carpetbaggers that kind of came down run amok filled their pockets and then left the South in shambles and ruins. And then black people were kind of left holding the bag, so to speak, is, is basically what he's saying about reconstruction there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so then the film, The Birth of a Nation, accurately captured Wilson's view of reconstruction as a chaotic period when white Southerners were denied their civil rights. Men like Dixon, Griffith, and Wilson emphatically believed that radical Republicans had put the white South under the heel of the black South. Wilson, like Dixon, grew up during the Civil War and Reconstruction. He was born in 1856 in Virginia to a pro-slavery Presbyterian minister who preached the benefits of slavery from the pulpit. Wilson went on to become a historian and was president of Princeton University from 1902 to 1910. After being elected to the presidency in 1912, Wilson appointed numerous Southern cabinet members who segregated federal workplaces for the first time. 
A day after the White House screening, Griffith and Dixon convinced the National Press Club to hold a private screening of the film at the Raleigh Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. Supreme Court Chief Justice White was the guest of honor. The Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, was in attendance, as well as the other Supreme Court justices and many members of Congress. Although the press corps was not supposed to write about the film, which hadn't been released publicly in the East yet, they could write about the Washington, D.C. screening event. This coverage created even more buzz for the movie and gave the movie tacit endorsement by the U.S. government. Also unsurprisingly, the screening at the White House was leaked to the press, giving the movie more support from the highest levels of government. The press coverage, however, became a point of embarrassment in the Wilson White House, prompting Wilson to issue a statement reading, quote, It is true that The Birth of a Nation was produced before the president and his family at the White House, but the president was entirely unaware of the character of the play before it was presented and has at no time expressed his approbation of it. Its exhibition at the White House was a courtesy extended to an old acquaintance. In hindsight, the statement seems a bit disingenuous, as Wilson knew Dixon, so it's to be believed that Wilson did not know about Dixon's best-selling novels, The Leopard Spots and The Klansman, which had also been a very successful state play. Mm, okay. <laughs> so whatever. The, the Birth of a Nation, regardless, The Birth of a Nation was quickly becoming one of the most controversial films ever. Throughout the United States, censorship boards and local political leaders had the power to ban a film from screening if they felt that the movie was somehow injurious to the public. The NAACP attempted to block the film from playing in cities across the United States. In New York City, the NAACP was able to secure 12 seats for a screening by the National Board of Censorship before the film was to be released in New York City. However, on the day of the event, NAACP leadership learned that their 12 seats had been reduced to two, and those two seats had to be filled by white people. From there, the NAACP petitioned the New York City Mayor John Peroy to block the film's release in the city. In response, Dixon and Griffith met with the mayor of his staff and promised to edit two scenes that were causing the most uproar, both scenes that implied blackmail lust directed towards white women. With this promise, the movie was shown, and it became apparent only after the fact that the scenes in question were not edited for content, only minor cosmetic changes had been made. Large protests against the film were held in several cities. Scores of white audiences loved the movie, while the NAACP and other civil rights groups organized protests against the movie that depicted black people as gullible, brutal, and rapists. Jane Addams said, quote, One of the most unfortunate things about this film is that it appeals to race prejudice upon the basis of conditions of half a century ago, which have nothing to do with the facts we have to consider today. Even then, it does not tell the whole truth. It is claimed the play is historical, but history is easy to misuse, end quote. <laughs> Don't we know it, Jane? Uh, in Boston, Booker T. Washington wrote a newspaper column asking readers to boycott the film. Boston civil rights activist William Monroe Trotter organized mass demonstrations against the film, which resulted in a police riot and numerous arrests of black people who tried to buy tickets to the movie and were turned away. 
Dixon and Griffith bristled at the pushback, while also thoroughly using it to their marketing advantage. Both boasted about the film's historical accuracy, and most moviegoers, even the historian Wilson himself, didn't find issues with the film's historical inaccuracies. In one example of many, part two of the film makes it seem as if all Southern legislatures had a black majority during Reconstruction and then subsequently, you know, ran amok. Dixon and Griffith act as if the period between 1865 and 1867 didn't happen, when in historian John Hope Franklin's words, quote, not one black man had the vote, when all Southern whites except the top Confederate leaders were in charge of all Southern state governments, and when white Southerners enacted laws designed to maintain a social and economic order that was barely distinguishable from the antebellum period, end quote. Contrary to how the film depicts the period, after 1867, black men were a majority in legislatures in only two southern states. Griffith's indignation at efforts to censor or ban the film motivated him to produce Intolerance in 1916, intended as a rebuttal to his critics and which explored the theme of intolerance. Griffith felt no need to apologize for the birth of a nation over its distortion of history and negative racial stereotypes. Instead, he saw his critics as the intolerant party, thus the name of the 1916 film. Despite the controversy, the film was immensely popular with white audiences and became a huge box office success. So why was it so popular? Yes, it was a cinematic marvel, and according to actress Mary Pickford was, quote, the first picture that really made people take the motion picture industry seriously, end quote. Yet it's so racist. I mean, again, the stereotypes of black people in this movie are are disgusting. And the KKK are, are the heroes of the film. Clan activities are shown as just and in a noble light. When in reality, the Klan were a vigilante terrorist organization. So what is the deal? Well, so this is kind of a cop-out to say, but things were different in 1915. Or, I don't know, maybe they weren't that different at all. But uh, journalist Dick Lair states it best when he says, quote, Most white viewers cheered and applauded, some standing in ovation. From their vantage point of white privilege, they were clueless of race complaints. The film, after all, reflected conventional thought that the Negro race was inferior, and to think otherwise required a paradigm shift in the media, the public's mind, and in much of the history and science of the time, end quote. This white American worldview was showcased in the blue and gray reunions happening across the country. In the films and literature Americans consumed, in the histories of the Civil War and Reconstruction that they read by respected historians like Woodrow Wilson, or the tragic era view of Reconstruction supported by early 20th century historians such as William Archibald Dunning and Claude G. Bowers. This was the period where Jim Crow segregation codified the separation of African Americans from the white population, and a segregated culture became common. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, the UDC, was a powerhouse organization that throughout the early 20th century succeeded in demanding that textbooks and public schools told the story of the Civil War, slavery, and the Confederacy from a lost cause Southern point of view. 
the UDC was influential in shaping the memory of the Civil War. And according to historian Joan Marie Johnson, quote, the UDC worked to define Southern identity around images from an old South that portrayed slavery as benign and slaves as happy and a reconstruction that portrayed blacks as savage and immoral. Groups like the UDC erected hundreds of monuments celebrating the Confederacy during the early 20th century. It was spurred on by the 50th anniversary of the end of the Civil War and a desire to justify spreading Jim Crow segregation and brutal repression of African Americans' civil rights during the period. Historian Karen Cox states that monuments are, quote, a legacy of the brutally racist Jim Crow era and that the whole point of Confederate monuments is to celebrate white supremacy, end quote. It's no coincidence, then, that a later wave of Confederate monument building coincided with the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. The year 1915 was not only the 50th anniversary of the end of the Civil War and the year Birth of a Nation was released. 1915 also saw the rebirth of a horrible organization. In November of 1915, about a dozen men gathered on a cold night in Stone Mountain, Georgia. They used pine boards soaked in kerosene to make a cross and lit it on fire, igniting the resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan. Within a year, this new KKK had about 100 followers. By 1921, the KKK was a national organization numbering almost 100,000. In 1926, thousands of Klan members marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., its leaders not even bothering to cover their faces. So when we ask ourselves, why did audiences tolerate the birth of a nation? And when we look at the American landscape of race relations, education, and popular culture in the early 20th century, we really shouldn't be surprised at all. The birth of a nation was a story that affirmed white people's ideas about their own racial superiority and what they believed was the proper racial hierarchy. Even if they didn't join the Klan themselves, many Americans saw no issue with the sentiments on display in movies like Birth of a Nation. It was a story of the mythology they already understood as history. Often the 1910s and 1920s are referred to as the nadir of race relations. Lynchings were grotesquely common, Segregation was further entrenched. Voting rights were annihilated in the South and many places in the North, too. Birth of a Nation was just one piece of this larger wave of white supremacy in America. So I took one for the team and and I watched this movie. I watched all three hours of it. And, you know, I've I've read about Birth of a Nation. I've seen clips. I've seen screenshots. I've, you know, read and seen all of this stuff before. But I have to admit that I had actually never sat down and and watched the movie. And so part of this, this copy here is like really my like astound, like being so flabbergasted at literally how racist it was. And yeah, like everything says, like, this is a racist film, this is a racist film. But like, I guess in just kind of like my post-1960s upbringing, right, where like, 
you know, it's dog whistles now and everything's a little more coded, right? So there's this always this kind of out like, oh, it's not racist, you know, because they're not like specifically saying the N-word or whatever. Like I'm just kind of used to that type of racism, right? Which this is a little more coded. Whereas this one is just like, bam, like in your face, you know, and I had even seen like the movie posters. I mean, you should Google them and we'll have a few of the movie posters in um, the show notes on digpodcast.org. Uh, you know, it has a clan figure there and all is regalia, you know, looking like the, the hero of the film. But for some reason, it still was so shocking to me, you know, as a historian, as somebody who studies this stuff all the time, it's just how like unapologetically uh, pro pro you know this mythology of of the clan as as being the saviors of the white race and the saviors of reconstruction it was just it was it was quite astounding to me well and the the fact that it's like a popular film right like because there are movies made now that are for a niche audience certainly and they're usually also terrible in some way but this was not made to be a niche film, right? This was, he was like, I'm going to. No, gonna, this was like a blockbuster. Yeah, I'm going to revolutionize with blockbuster. You know, he, he's yeah. like, he's launching a, a new right, sort of field for film. Right. Um, so knowing that there was a market for this, he knew that going in. He knew that because of the success of the play and he knew that because of the success of novels, right. the novel and novels like it. Right, right. And I guess that's what I was trying to, um, you know, bring out in this podcast, you know, maybe to the detriment of of not highlighting the um, pushback against the film enough, right? And there is um, a great book by Dick Lear, and then they made a, um, a PBS made a documentary about it called The Birth of a Movement, right? And so it really kind of chronicles the uh, the protest movement against this film. But, you know, ultimately that that protest movement was, uh, you know, it failed, right? I mean, it's still, this still became one of the highest grossing, you know, movies and, and the most kind of celebrated movies um, in film history, you know, to this day, right? Like it's still taught in film school, um, you know, sometimes without the commentary and the context that, that uh, needs to be given before before it's, you know, shown as, as a great piece of, of film work, right? Mm. Um, and so that was that was kind of what I was really trying to to get across was that of how normal this was, yeah. of how this 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 normalcy of everyday racism um, really was just uh, you know soaked into the the kind of ethos of 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 whiteness in America at the time. Yeah, I, and I wonder, you know, I feel like we live in a very white bubble in are part of Buffalo, I think. And so I I imagine that there's, or I know that that, that kind of blatant racism do, is still, does still exist. Oh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I mean, again, I've said this in numerous podcasts, right? Like I was, I was raised in the South. I was completely raised in the mythology of the, of the lost cause. Like this is not something that, that died yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. I mean, mine might have not been so explicit, but, but definitely like, uh, you know, John Brown was a horrible, terrible man. And, uh, you know, the war of northern aggression and, uh, you know, Reconstruction was a failure. And, you know, all all that stuff was still 
that deeply ingrained in my education yeah. growing up. So it, yeah. it's, it's of course not dead. And I mean, yeah. of course we see in the news today that it's not dead, but in kind of general polite society, this, this, this type of blatant racism is, is not accepted right. anymore. Yeah. We hope mostly. Um, but you know, here it is, you know, on the, on the big screen. So, to so, speak, so. did you watch the, isn't there a remake of Birth of a Nation? Well, it's not a remake. It's uh, it was filmed in ni- in 2016, and it's a- actually about Nat Turner's rebellion, mm. which um, you know happens much way before the the Civil War. Um, and I read that the filmmaker was actually kind of trying to um, clap back, like yeah, like too late. <laughs> like to re uh, retake that 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 uh, that title, you know, and kind yeah. of make it into a black anthem i'll admit i actually haven't seen uh that that particular movie the birth of a nation um but if you are googling birth of a nation like for more information just be aware that there are now two movies with the same name and so we're talking about the one from 1915 which is very different than the one from 2016 which was you know kind of trying to yeah like like april says like clap back and kind of re um retake that that name yeah, sort of redefine the nation that was birthed. There you right? go. Thank you. Yeah. You're so, that's much better than how I'm stumbling through it. Yeah. I think, well, in, uh, obviously the, the rest of this series is about hmm, like vaginal births, really. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I guess I should say, right, like this this particular episode is for our birth series, but I just felt like, oh, birth of a nation. Like that's so, yeah, that, that'll, that'll, that's a great play. And I don't know, I didn't feel like talking about medical births anymore. I feel like I've done that a lot on this podcast. (laughs) Plus Uh, I'd like, I'd like to use this, this podcast in some of my classes. So yeah, I mean, I, I applaud you because I feel like usually I'm the one who (laughs) twists the definition of our, (laughs) of Of our our series. series. Yeah. Uh, So it was good to not be the outsider this time. It was you. Um, All right. Yeah. But this is good. All right. Well, hey, everybody, thanks for listening so much. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Make sure you like uh, leave us a rating on iTunes, a five star if you so are so inclined. Um, and we always like to see your comments there. We like to see them uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. Join our Dig History Pod Squad Facebook group or just send an email, an email at hello at his, uh, hello at digpodcast.org. Um, you know, we love hearing from all of our listeners and this was a listener request series, a birth series. So, um, it took us a year for it to happen, but if you want to hear a, you know, a topic or a, a specific, um, issue, you want us to dig into that history, then, you know, send us a, send us a note. Yeah. We're, we're Let us listening. know. We'll try yeah. to do it if we can. Absolutely. Sure. And you yeah. can uh, visit our website, digpodcast.org, where you'll find the transcript for this episode, uh, images with the transcript and the full bibliography, as well as a link to our swag store where you can get cute little Dig Podcast original designs. Um, and that supports. April creates. That She's I awesome. do create. Yes. Yes. In all my free time. All right. Well, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. On the hearth. Hearth. Did I say tacit correctly? I I think you did. Okay. Yeah. Historian David Blight sums this up perfect. Sums this up.
but bio biograph comp company oh god thrust his appropriation appropriate appro approbation of it well this is kind of a cop out to say but did, i don't think i said cop out well however on the day of the event the nadir or nader marissa i'm gonna say both use the one that's correct i don't know i always say nader yes. but you know me i don't know how to pronounce shit <laughs> for musical accompaniment accompany a Say it for me. Accom accompaniment. <laughs> Why can't I say it? Between 1865. Five. Although Roaring Drake. <laughs> Griffith hired composer Joseph Carl Braille. How would you say that? Braille? Braille? I'd say Braille. Braille? No. No. Carrie! <laughs> Shh. <laughs> she says something else. <laughs> <laughs> 